Welcome to Roleplaying History, the podcast where we explore the history of role-playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 51, D&D Beyond and Digital Toolsets. Normally on this program, we examine the history of a game, a game system, or a game creator. Every once in a while, we do a deep dive on a topic that doesn't fall into one of these categories, but over the course of the first year, we haven't done that very often. This week, however, is going to be one of those shows. Digital tool sets have been around in some shape or form pretty much as long as the home computer has been around. But I think we can all safely say they've really become more popular over the past two and a half years, primarily due to the global pandemic and everybody trying to play their favorite games from home. Numbers pretty much prove this out, but we'll get into that a bit more as we deep dive the various subjects. And we're not just looking at D&D Beyond. Before this episode ends, we'll take a look at a number of different products and systems on the market, so you've got a more comprehensive look at what's out there and what's available. And since I've actually used several of these, I'll be chiming in with some of my own opinions as we go along. Okay, so with the setup complete, it's time to crank up the tour bus and hit the first stop on today's tour, D&D Beyond. D&D Beyond is, and has been since its inception, the official online tool set for 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons. I'll dive deeper into what the program does in a minute, but first, let's do what we always do on this show and explore the history of D&D Beyond. D&D Beyond was designed and created by the folks at Curse LLC. They launched the beta test for the program on March 21st, 2017, before doing an official open launch for the program on August 15th, 2017. At the start, D&D Beyond only offered players the opportunity to create their characters using the basics that were provided in the program. However, if they chose to purchase the relevant books, they could have the materials for any of the available source books from 5e for use for their characters. That being said, the basic rules for D&D were available for use by all for free. On December 12th, 2018, Fandom Inc. announced their acquisition of all of Curse LLC's media assets, and that included D&D Beyond. The price of that deal was not announced. Fandom took advantage of the new acquisition and took steps to increase the offerings. In June of 2019, D&D Beyond added an Encounter Builder toolset and opened it to subscribers for an alpha test. By October of that year, the tool had entered public beta testing. By the end of 2019, the Encounter Builder was available to all users of D&D Beyond. Fandom didn't stop there, though. In February of 2020, they added a combat tracker, which again was initially only available for alpha testing to subscribers. By the end of the year, it had been beta tested and released for use for all D&D Beyond users. On March 25th, 2020, Adam Bradford, who was the Vice President of Tabletop Gaming at Fandom, did an interview with Sci-Fi Wire. During that interview, he reported that D&D Beyond's normal number of new users had doubled over the past few weeks of the COVID-19 pandemic, and further noted that there was, quote, a similar increase in the number of active users, end quote. In April of 2020, the Wall Street Journal reported, quote, 
Bradford said that the number of registered users has tripled in the past month, and the number of online players at any one time has doubled on average. The uptake has forced the company to accelerate the expansion of its infrastructure, which otherwise would have taken place months from now. End quote. Wow, our, our first time quoting the Wall Street Journal. It only took us a year. Of course, by now, most of you are aware of this next part, but I believe in being thorough, so let's get to it. On April 13th, 2022, Hasbro, the parent company of Wizards of the Coast, announced the acquisition of D&D Beyond for the price of $146.3 million U.S., in an attempt to alleviate fears from the gaming community, Hasbro announced at the time that they will fully intend to support all of the previous purchases made on the service and that they will transfer control of the site into Wizards of the Coast. As of this recording, the deal is still not complete. However, I did see some stuff online just as I was getting ready to record that said it looks like the deal will be completed by May 19th. This is where I have to admit this deal surprised me. Not because Hasbro bought it or that they spent nearly $150 million. I was shocked because I had no idea that Wizards didn't already own D&D Beyond. Whoops. Polygon Magazine gave their thoughts on the deal, reminding readers that, quote, Wizards of the Coast is a large portion of Hasbro's overall earnings since the launch of 5th edition D&D in 2014. With an operating profit of $547 million in 2021, Wizards Business Unit accounted for 72% of Hasbro's operating profit for the year. Taking that into perspective, the purchase of D&D Beyond from Fandom for $146.3 million in cash seems like a small price to pay in order to lock down a platform with reportedly close to 10 million users. End quote. Other writers have taken to their keyboards to try to anticipate what Wizards' next moves with D&D Beyond might be, and from more options to the virtual tabletop experience to allowing for a one-price, one-purchase that would allow for both physical books and D&D Beyond content, the theories run the gamut. Now, with the history complete, I want to expand on my comment from a moment ago about knowing that Wizards didn't already own D&D Beyond. My reasons for that were that you, you could purchase digital copies of all the released books on the site and use them in the program. Also, Wizards was well represented on the site as the D&D Beyond homepage had links to the official Dungeons & Dragons channels on YouTube and Twitch, as well as links to the DMs Guild. On top of that, D&D creators constantly were having their interviews and comments posted on the site. For whatever reason, it just never occurred to me to read all the way to the bottom of the page and note who actually owned the site. You live, you learn. Okay, so for those who aren't familiar with D&D Beyond, what exactly is it? As we mentioned in the opening, D&D Beyond is, first and foremost, an online resource for players to build their characters and to allow them to access the character in a digital form during gameplay, thus eliminating the need to print off their character sheet for play. That process also allows for an easier leveling up of characters, as you don't have to mark all over the sheet. The program provides for a system that allows spellcasters to keep track of their spells for the day, as well as all characters with per-day powers to keep track of how often they've used them. As I mentioned during the history piece, an encounter builder and combat tracker have also been added to the program over the years, and those allow for the DM to have to do less math when attempting to determine the proper DC for their group. At this point, you might have noticed something. 
I haven't mentioned anything about an app. It's because at first there wasn't one. However, in 2018, Fandom announced a mobile app had been released into beta testing. However, this initial mobile app was only designed to be an e-reader for official D&D content. Needless to say, a huge number of users complained about there not being a character sheet or character builder on the app, which most users reportedly wanted. This was fixed by 2020 when the app was updated to include a character sheet and character builder. DM's functions were also supposedly on the way, but as of the sale of the project, those functions hadn't appeared. Okay, so we've examined what D&D Beyond does. Now let's get into the part that's a bit more controversial, which is how did it make the amounts of money to make it worth $150 million? Let me start this point by saying this. Pretty much every article I read or site I looked at took a ton of time trying to explain the costs and what the buyer got. I'm not going to do that. If you want to get deeper into these, the information is readily available online for your perusal, and I would encourage you to do so. All right, so with the disclaimer out of the way, let's get into it. I mentioned off the top that D&D Beyond is technically free to use. And if all you want or need are the basic rules and any other materials Wizards of the Coast is released for free, that's true. It's also free for a DM if all you're interested in is being able to organize one campaign's worth of characters together in one place. I'll break that all down in a minute. But if you want or need more books for your game or you're trying to keep track of more than one campaign, that's where the cost comes into play. Now, the costs for the books range from $20 to $50, depending on the size of the book. My example for that is that the core rule books will run you about $30 a piece, while the new Spelljammer content is on pre-sale for $50. Some adventure modules run you $20, and I do have to note that there are some things in the site marketplace that run $10 or less, but there's typically not a ton of stuff for that price. I should also point out that you don't necessarily need to buy the entire book. In most instances, you can just purchase sections of the book, which would be helpful if you're just looking to add races or classes, skills, or spells to the program, and you're not interested in the entire book for your e-reader usage. Obviously, those sections sell at a reduced rate, but in most cases, most folks just buy the entire book as you get full PDF access to that volume with the benefits reading a book on an e-reader can bring. As of this recording, you could purchase a bundle on the site that would give you everything Wizards of the Coast has published for 5th edition. That bundle will run you about $700, but again, it gives you everything. In digital form, anyway. There are no physical books included. So what precisely are you paying for? Quite simply, you're paying for the ability to have all of the races, classes, abilities, skills, spells, and equipment you think you're going to use in your campaign available for access when building and advancing characters. From a DM's perspective, you have access to all of the monsters and magic items as well, making it easier to lay out your campaign from a digital perspective. There's also the option to purchase a yearly subscription to D&D Beyond, and I think that's really tailored more for the DM, as it allows them the ability to share all of the digital purchases they've made with their group, at least for character creation, they can't actually share the digital books, as well as giving them the ability to manage multiple campaigns at the same time. Prices for those plans have varied over the years, and I know I paid about $75 for mine about a year ago. Needless to say, D&D Beyond hasn't been popular with a large portion of D&D players. 
The criticisms have been plentiful. One review from Charlie Hall in Polygon Magazine pointed out that D&D Beyond's legendary bundle was about $638 as of the writing of his article in March of 2020. He noted that the cost of the physical books was about the same and claimed that, quote, many players are still defaulting to physical books, end quote. He called D&D Beyond a luxury app and noted that he's, quote, not eager to effectively buy the same content twice. End quote. In truth, that's been the number one complaint I've noted about D&D Beyond Online. Folks just don't want to pay twice for basically the same materials. Obviously, before the Hasbro acquisition of the property, it had to work like that, since Fandom got their share of the purchase price before transferring the remainder of the money to Wizards of the Coast. However, with everything being under one roof moving forward, as I mentioned, there are hopes this process might change. Another complaint about D&D Beyond comes from the old-school gamer who likes having a paper character sheet in their hands. I have a player like that in my group, and I have to admit I ran into issues with printing the character sheets off of D&D Beyond when I ran my last game. We eventually switched to that player using paper only for a while while we tried to convince them to use the app. Most of the gaming publications have actually written positive reviews of D&D Beyond. Writers noted that thanks to the character creation system, they'd tried class and race combinations they might not have tried before. And they also tried various skill loads that, again, they may not have tried if they'd had to write everything out and look everything up. Other writers noted the ease of use of the online program, though those reviews, which were written early in D&D Beyond's life, were begging for mobile apps. Needless to say, they got what they wanted. Okay, so I've mentioned multiple times that I've used D&D Beyond, so I'm going to do something I don't frequently do and give my own thoughts on the product. From a character creation perspective, I like the program. It does give you the opportunity to try other classes and races that you might not normally do, because all you have to do is click on the choices you want to make, and the program fills everything else in. Also, if you decide you don't like something you chose, you can fairly easily go back and make changes before you finalize it. From a DM's perspective, I like the ability to organize my campaign's characters together in one place so I can monitor the characters and look things up as needed. It also allows me, as the DM, to see player roles, if they use the provided online roller, in real time. However, as my last D&D game ended in early 2022, I don't know if I'll be continuing my subscription or using the product again, and here's my reasoning why. While the online character creator and the other features they've got at present are cool, I'm still, as the DM, required to do a lot of work in the analog style, if you will. My argument to that is that if I can't have a one-stop shop for my entire game, I'm probably just going to go with the old school method. That being said, if Wizards makes the kind of improvements that have been requested for and or rumored, my opinions of that might change. Now, I need to point out that D&D Beyond isn't the first time Wizards has tried a virtual tabletop system. The honors for that go to D&D Insider. D&D Insider was announced at Gen Con in 2007 and was intended to launch with 4th edition D&D in 2008. The idea of D&D Insider when it was announced was that it would be a true virtual dungeon system with virtual miniatures, a virtual dungeon or other setting, and the ability to have your character sheets and die rolls entirely online. Now, if you look at the technology we have now and think back to what we had in 2007, that was kind of a bit of a big sell. 
D&D Insider was a subscription-only program, but it promised access to all D&D books and materials as they were released. On that end, they met the expectation. DMs and players could use the system to create characters and print them off. Characters could also be saved and updated, and this, as I mentioned earlier, made leveling up characters a lot easier. However, they felt short in the other areas. The virtual miniatures were supposed to be created using a character visualizer, which was a 3D full-body portrait program. However, the system wasn't ever officially completed, and Wizards took legal actions against any third-party providers who attempted to fix and finish the system for use. Furthermore, the virtual tabletop, i.e. the dungeon, wasn't ever fully completed either. Whether it was because of the limitations of the technology of the time or because their visions were a bit too large, it never really worked out. The experiment was ended in 2017 when D&D Insider was ended with the announcement of D&D Beyond for 5th edition. Now this is another system I used. I have to admit, I was enthralled by the concept of a virtual tabletop system, as I'd had various issues with my own group from time to time during that period. I figured if I could use a virtual tabletop, maybe I could find another group to play with online. So I shelled out for the subscription, only to find out that basically the only thing I could use it for was to manage the characters my nieces and their friends created for the game I was running for them. To that end, it was well worth most of it, but I'd still have rather had everything I'd been promised. I also wanted to make clear that D&D Insider was completely run by Wizards of the Coast, which probably explains why they took advantage of the opportunity to have an outside company develop D&D Beyond. Okay, let's get away from Dungeons & Dragons for a bit. In fact, let's get away from virtual tabletops for a few minutes and look at campaign map creators. Over the years, there have been a ton of programs created that have scratched the map-making itch of the GM who's tired of drawing them all out by hand on graph paper. The first program we're looking at is one of the oldest programs that's still being used for gaming today, Campaign Cartographer. Campaign Cartographer was created by the folks at Pro Fantasy Software in 1993, for you tech types, the CAD engine of the program was based on FastCAD, but most of the code for the program has been written by the publishers. At its core, Campaign Cartographer was originally designed to create world maps for both tabletop role players and miniature wargamers. To that end, the program has a number of features that give you the options to increase elevation, set the climate, and other details of the maps that would be more difficult to do by hand. The original program was so successful, the company added other add-ons to the original program over the years. City Designer allows for the layout of cities of all sizes and has about 2,000 different symbols for use in the creation. Dungeon Designer brought Campaign Cartographer directly into the D&D and fantasy game world with the ability to draw corridors of different sizes, but also being able to draw caves and rooms and other kinds of odd-shaped dungeon rooms. Character Artist Pro allows for the creation of character portraits. Dioramas Pro allows for the creation of terrain and props that can be used for 3D models. Cosmographer takes the campaign cartographer concept into space, so systems, planets, starship ports, and the like can be created for your sci-fi game. And Perspectives Pro take the Dioramas Pro concept to floor plans, allowing for 3D models and views. They also have another release that adds more symbols to all of the programs in the line. 
It should be noted that campaign cartographer has been used to illustrate novels such as Shades of Grey by Lizanne Norman, Le Temple de U Mortes by Eric Ferris, and Johannes Cabal the Detective by Jonathan L. Howard. And I know I butchered some of those names. Sorry about that. Also, the Forgotten Realms Interactive Atlas, which was published by TSR in 1999, was also created using Campaign Cartographer. Okay, so I've described the program. How was it received? Lester W. Smith, writing in Dragon Magazine in September of 1994, it's issue 209, nerds, said this, quote, For those who like to invest multiple hours creating detailed maps for their campaigns and who have the hardware to take advantage of the program, the campaign cartographer software allows them to create, store, modify, and copy maps more beautiful than they could have hoped for before. But for GMs with limited time to spend, the program may just be too much. End quote. Overall, he believed that too much program was better than too little and gave Campaign Cartographer a 5 out of 6 rating. And he was not alone. The average rating for the program was in the 8 to 8.5 out of 10 range with comments similar to Smith's. This is yet another program I've used, and I agree with Lester W. Smith. I, I have the hardware to run the program, but I found that it takes so much time to create a map. I get frustrated and bored, and I stop before it's done. But if you're one of those who's a stickler for details and you like making maps, this program's for you. If you head to Campaign Cartographer's website, usually they have some sort of deal, some package where you can get the world map builder, the city map builder, and the dungeon builder programs together. When I did that, I think it cost me 90 or 100 bucks. Worth it to check it out, especially if, like I said, if you're one of those that really gets into details with your maps. Auto Realm is another map making program. It was developed by Andy Gurk and released in March of 2006. Auto Realm was designed as an open source program and was written primarily in Delphi and only works in Windows and Wine. Reports are out there claiming the GUI will be recoded so that it can be used for Linux, FreeBSD, and macOS, but as of this recording, that apparently has not been done. The beauty of the program, if you're a bit more of a programming type, is that it supports various graphic layers, which allows for the use of multiple grids and measurement methods. It has all the tools you need to create a country map for your campaign. And if you're interested, the website is autorealm.sourceforge.net. All right, since we took a couple of entries off from virtual tabletops, let's get back into them for our final two entries. Fantasy Grounds is probably one of the best known and most used virtual tabletop applications out there. Created by Smiteworks, which was originally based in Espoo, Finland, Fantasy Grounds was released in 2004. In 2009, the company was purchased by Doug Davison, and after the purchase, they purchased licenses for several tabletop role-playing game systems. In 2015, Smiteworks got the license from Wizards of the Coast for official D&D content for 5th edition. Around the same time, Fantasy Grounds became available through the Steam platform. Hey, if you know, you know. In December of 2016, Smiteworks obtained a license from Paizo Publishing for Pathfinder content, and they started providing that in May of 2017. In May of 2019, Fantasy Grounds ran a successful Kickstarter campaign to fund Fantasy Grounds Unity, which is a new version of their software built in Unity. 
As a gamer, I can tell you I get ads for Fantasy Grounds nearly every day on both my Facebook and Twitter feeds, and I imagine you've probably gotten them too. There are a number of live stream games that utilize Fantasy Grounds as their system for the game, and I also know that when the pandemic began, sales of Fantasy Grounds shot through the roof. So what's so neat about it? Skeptics have noted that Fantasy Grounds has some of the same features as many other virtual systems, virtual dice rolling, character sheets, and maps with a grid system. However, one of the things that makes Fantasy Grounds different from other systems is that they've got licenses for many of the most popular games out there so that you can use their content for your online game. In addition, text chat is a part of the program. Granted, that's also something that's offered in other systems, but the combination of all of these things is what makes Fantasy Grounds a bit different from all the other systems out there. Reviewers of the system praise it for the features and tool sets because they allow players to fully customize their games, including the look of the virtual tabletop. It's also considered by most to be the most reliable virtual tabletop program out there. The biggest complaint or criticism of Fantasy Grounds is its cost. While you can play for free, if your DM has an ultimate subscription, most players will want to get a standard subscription, which is 40 bucks a year. That gives access to basic rules for D&D, Pathfinder, and a few other systems. I should also note that the ultimate subscription is $150 a year and has more perks. But if you want all of the rules for, say, D&D 5th Edition, you'd have to buy access to those books. They've got a bundle where you can get the core books plus a few others for $200. The prices are about the same for some of the other game systems that they've got licenses for. You'd also have to pay for adventure modules if you choose to use them. The benefit, though, is that their maps become available to your tabletop if you do. So, the complaint is that Fantasy Grounds charges a bit too much, in the critics' opinion, for things that other systems offer for free. However, if you want to check it out for yourself, they do have a free trial, and you can check it out at fantasygrounds.com. Oh, and one more point. Everybody playing is going to have to have a subscription unless the DM happens to have an ultimate. So that means everybody would have to shell out. Just wanted to get that out there. Also, I have to admit that I haven't used Fantasy Grounds, so I have no personal comments or views on how it works. The last stop on our tour this week is Roll20. Roll20 was originally conceived as a personal project by college roommates Riley Dutton, Nolan Jones, and Richard Zayas so that they could keep playing D&D together after they graduated college and moved to different cities. Being members of the gaming community, they quickly realized their program could help a whole lot of other gamers. They started a Kickstarter in the spring of 2012 to take the system public. Their initial goal? $5,000. They raised almost forty grand. After the close of the Kickstarter, they ran a short beta testing period before releasing Roll20 to the world in December of 2012. In July of 2016, Roll20 announced that they'd acquired a license from Wizards of the Coast for official D&D material. Along with the announcement, they also released the Lost Mine of Fandelver on the Roll20 Marketplace. In July of 2015, they reached 1 million users and hit 2 million in January of 2017. In March of 2020, many groups turned to Roll20 when the COVID-19 pandemic hit and used the system to keep their game alive. So what is Roll20, and why is it so different from what we've discussed thus far? The beauty of Roll20 is that it's a free system to use. For free, you get a virtual tabletop that you can put your own maps, virtual miniatures, and other visuals onto. 
The various players can also appear live via webcam and each player can see each other and the tabletop. Roll20 also offers virtual dice as well as text chat with both group and personal chats allowed. Now, if you're interested in having official product for your game, Roll20 has licenses with most of the major publishers to make their maps and products available for use, and the prices are comparable with what we've discussed in other systems on this show. And if it sounds like I've used the system before, that's because I have. When the pandemic hit, my buddy Jim moved his Star Trek game to Roll20. I do have to point out that we had some issues with the system, particularly with lag, but I've been wondering all along if that wasn't more because my computer was old and some of our internet speeds were slow. That could very well be. Overall, I liked the system, and I've been considering utilizing it again in the future for a one-shot, so we'll see. I know I didn't drop any reviews for this, but I do have this to add. Roll20 was named the gold winner in the best software category of the Any Awards in 2013, 2014, 2015, and 2016. So there's that. And with that, we come to the end of today's tour. Of course, I suppose I could have also mentioned that you can use Discord for online playing, but Discord's a way different program, and I think that might be another episode. So anyway, speaking of information that I wasn't quite happy with, let's discuss what next week's episode will cover. I've been teasing it for a couple of weeks now, and while a few of you have hit me up on social media to guess, and some of you got it right, by the way, I decided to be a tease and make you wait for today. So what's it going to be? To celebrate the end of our first year as a podcast, we're going to go back and do a revisit of the very first episode of role-playing history. I've pulled the script from that first show, and I've been working on some new material for it because I realized there was a lot of stuff I should have covered at the time, and I didn't. So, next week we end year one the way we began it by taking another look at what led to the creation of role-playing games. You're not going to want to miss that. Speaking of things you're not going to want to miss, make it a point to catch my other podcast, Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. That's the show where we build an entire campaign for you from setting creation to character creation and to scenario creation. I stretched that word out a bit more than I meant to. In other words, we give you everything you need to run your own game. The system we're using at present is Deadlands Classic, and as a bonus, I've been running my home group through what we've created for the show, and I've been giving feedback on my sessions. In fact, this week we'll create some scenarios, then I'll do a recap of how my group played them out. And I'll just warn you in advance that there's a reason I'm the bad GM. Just saying. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is available wherever you get your podcasts. The music we use for this show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for all your royalty and license-free music needs. Role-Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. Follow us on Facebook, Bad GM Productions, Twitter, at Bad GMP, YouTube, Bad GM Productions, Twitch, Bad GM, and email BadGMProductions at gmail.com. Next week, we go all the way back to the beginnings of this show and revisit our very first episode. Don't worry, though. I'm not going to replay the audio of that show. You're welcome. That's next week. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis and your role-playing history.